0: Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dr. Yahuru Williams, founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative, at the University of St. Thomas, who assesses the conduct of the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the steps necessary to address the crisis in U.S. policing. Peter Mayberduke, director of Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicines program, who explains why 66 groups are urging President Biden to implement a global vaccine manufacturing program to end the coronavirus pandemic. And Colin Reese senior campaigner with Oil Change International, who examines President Biden's position on ending billions of dollars of annual fossil fuel industry subsidies. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories.
1: In a scene reminiscent of the murder of George Floyd, Salvadoran migrant Victoria Ariaza was killed in front of a convenience store by a Mexican police officer. The incident in Tulum in late March sparked a wave of protests across Mexico against police brutality and violence against immigrants. The police officer knelt on and broke the woman's neck in a scene recorded by bystanders. Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador condemned the police behavior as murder. The police officers involved were jailed and charged with femicide. According to the Christian Science Monitor, 2021 has seen multiple incidents of police brutality in Mexico. In January, 12 police officers were involved in the killing of a Guatemalan immigrant. In early April, seven police officers were arrested for the kidnapping and disappearance of a family returning from Easter vacation. In a recent survey, nearly two-thirds of people report they were beaten during arrest. In almost half those cases, police carrying out the arrests failed to identify themselves as law enforcement officers. Mexico passed sweeping judicial reforms in 2008, including mandating more police training around collecting evidence and gathering testimony. However, there is concern that Lopez Obrador's decision to militarize the police under the newly formed National Guard, paired with sizable federal budget cuts, could undermine progress. Buried in President Joe Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan is a progressive tax reform agenda that includes raising the global corporate minimum tax to prevent massive tax avoidance by U.S. tech giants such as Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is advocating a corporate tax increase to 28% along with the adoption of a 21% global corporate minimum tax updating international tax rules for the first time in a generation. Yellen's proposal of a higher international corporate tax was well-received by European nations and tax fairness advocates. The Biden proposal is double the Trump offshore minimum tax and higher than the 12.5% tax rate in Ireland, a tax haven used by both Apple and Google. A progressive international minimum corporate tax rate could raise over $50 billion in new revenue for cash-strapped nations. In laying out her proposal, Yellen, the former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve Board, called for an end to a 30-year race to the bottom on corporate tax rates with the goal of stopping corporations from offshoring to lower-tax nations such as the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, and the Netherlands. Biden's proposal, which won praise from France, Germany, and Italy, is expected to jumpstart talks for the minimum corporate tax. The pro-Trump insurrection on Capitol Hill on January sixth was the culmination of a six-year increase in extremist right-wing violence often driven by white supremacist, anti-Muslim, and anti-government hatred. The Washington Post chronicled the upsurge, using data developed by the think-tank Center for Strategic and International Studies. The surge reflects the growing threat from homegrown terrorism not seen in a quarter century. The analysis shows that right-wing extremist attacks and plots greatly outnumbered those from the far left and caused more deaths. The database identified 267 right-wing extremist plots and 91 fatalities since 2015. In contrast, the Post identified 66 far-left incidents, including the burning of a Minneapolis police station, during the militant protests following the death of George Floyd during his arrest. Over 25% of the far-right incidents were inflicted in support of white supremacy, Blacks, Jews, immigrants, Asians, LGBTQ, and other people from communities of color were attacked by right-wing extremists using vehicles, guns, knives, and their fists as weapons. There were 73 far-right attacks in 2020, the most in nearly 30 years. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo.
0: Fired Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts of murder and manslaughter charges in the death of George Floyd. The jury reached its verdict on April 20th after deliberating about 10 hours over two days. The most serious charge carries up to 40 years in prison. As the nation watched the trial broadcast live on TV, the ongoing crisis in U.S. policing came into sharper focus after the recent police shooting deaths of 20-year-old Dante Wright in the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center and 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago. Last year, the video of George Floyd's death under the knee of Officer Chauvin set off angry protests in Minneapolis and months of demonstrations across the U.S. and world calling for an end to police violence. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Yahuru Williams, Distinguished University Chair Professor and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Here he assesses the conduct of the Chauvin murder trial and how the nation can take concrete steps toward reforming the ways in which police interact with residents they serve in communities of color.
2: I think there are are three takeaways from this trial that make it unique. Um, One, breaking of the blue wall of silence. And I think in this particular case, to have Chief Arandando, for example, testify on behalf of the prosecution to have you know this, this range of officers come on and talk about how what they saw was a deviation from training um, and fundamentally inhuman, um, what they saw on, on behalf of uh, their children, was significant. I think secondly, what was important about this trial is that although it will pivot ultimately on the um, testimony of expert witnesses, Uh, This is the first time in a long time that police brutality and a sustained conversation, a discourse around what constitutes brutality, I think has been had at least since uh, Rodney King in 1992. And again, that's not to say that there haven't been other cases, but this has brought that issue home in a way. I think because of the um, intimate nature of the violence that was visited on George Floyd's body that we haven't had in a long time. Ordinarily, we're talking about police who fire on individuals. So I think back to that rash of killings in New York um, in the early 2000s. You know, Sean Bell, Amadou Diallo and others, Abner Uwima, those are shooting. So it doesn't seem as personal. The nine and a half minutes that we watched Derek Chauvin place his knee on George Floyd's neck and watch the other officers fail to render aid, I think, was compelling in a way of forcing that conversation in a way that we haven't had in this country in a long time. And I think third, something I wrote about in The Progressive a few days ago last Friday, this idea that there's a hyper focus on this being a moratorium on policing. But if you think about the witnesses who appeared, particularly in the first few days of the trial, this is really a moratorium on American poverty. It's a moratorium on systemic racism and injustice. It's a moratorium. If you think about The individuals who lined up on that sidewalk and who were calling for Officer Chauvin and his colleagues to render aid to George Floyd, it's symptomatic of how women and people of color in in our society are still silenced and ignored. You know, it's easy for us to kind of look at this and, and for people to say, you know, we need to deal with issues of policing. But the kind of base issues, foundational issues here, the police and communities of color and communities like 38th and Chicago aren't seen as peace officers, people who are there to preserve and, and, um, and serve and protect, they're seen as an occupying army. And, and that's part of the, the problem.
0: Well, Dr. Williams, I did want to ask you about how to effectively undertake reform of police departments. It's a complicated issue. There's a lot of discussion about retraining, de-escalation techniques, racial sensitivity training, community control of police departments. Repealing the, uh, the qualified immunity that police have around the country, defunding or redirecting funds uh, from communities to different agencies to tackle some of the, the issues that police are forced to deal with and they're ill-equipped to effectively deal with. What are some of your thoughts about this?
2: It's not like people who are living in um, communities that are ravaged by poverty and crime It's not that they don't want police. I mean, that was one of the things that happened here in the aftermath of the calls for defund the police, where you had uh, certain pockets in community who came out and said, now, now, hold on a second here. Um, There are real issues in our community that we would like addressed. It's not that we want um, no police. We just want good policing. We want the type of policing that suburban communities enjoy, where officers have a vested interest in those communities because they live in those communities. How do we then think about reimagining the safety net? Can we do something with our schools that have wraparound services? Can we reimagine the way that we create opportunities for leisure, for young people? Um, Can we deal with addressing the very real needs that people have with regard to food deserts and lack of adequate health care? Some of the things that inspire some of the criminality that we see and some of the low level off the likes of which, again, you're talking about, in the case of George Floyd, a forgery, in the case of Dante Wright, an outstanding warrant, but what precipitated the traffic stop were expired tags and then an air freshener's window, which was illegal. You have to question at that point, as Chief Arandando said, uh, with regard to the forgery charge, that that's not something the officers typically would arrest someone for. But in communities of color, That's the entree to the brutality that we witness that ends up creating moments like this that should force us to think broader than just what are the police doing? It's more a question of what's fundamentally wrong with our society and culture that people would need to forge $20. I think all those issues are intertwined in a way that um, are reminiscent of what the Reverend Dr. King talked about in his final book, where do we go from here, chaos or community? Where he memorably asked the question, what good is it to have the right to eat in a restaurant if you can't afford anything on the menu? Civil rights without economic justice are dead rights. And a conversation about policing without looking at issues of economic justice and how we address issues of poverty, systemic injustice, which sometimes fuel the low-level criminality that we're talking about, that fuel the coping um, use of drugs uh, that we talk about, that they, they has to be embodied in this conversation as well.
0: That was Dr. Yehuru Williams, Distinguished University Chair Professor and Founding Director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find more analysis and commentary on the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the crisis in U.S. policing by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. More than 5.2 million people around the world were diagnosed with COVID-19 infections during the week ending April 17th, a higher number than any other week since the start of the pandemic one year ago. The majority of infections are found in poor developing nations, ill-equipped to effectively treat those who've contracted this dangerous virus. This surge in infections comes as the world surpassed 3 million deaths attributed to the coronavirus. Although many Western nations are making progress in distributing vaccinations to their populations, data finding a 12% increase in COVID infections from a week earlier is a wake-up call that the end of the pandemic, for much of the world, is not yet clearly in sight. Sixty-six global health, development, and humanitarian organizations are calling on President Biden to implement a global vaccine manufacturing program to end the COVID-19 pandemic and build a globally distributed vaccine infrastructure to address inevitable future pandemics. Your reporter spoke with Peter Maberduke, director of Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicines program, who explains why his and dozens of other groups are urging President Biden to support the global vaccine manufacturing initiative to waive pharmaceutical company patents, to bring billions of additional vaccine doses to people around the world.
3: Our initiative is born in part of the recognition that right now there isn't actually a plan to end the pandemic. The Global Equitable Vaccine Access Initiative, COVAX, which is very important, it's a collaboration of the World Health Organization with uh, Gates-affiliated Organizations is aiming to provide maximum one in four people in low and middle income countries with a vaccine by the end of this year, and and frankly that's ambitious. Probably won't do quite that well a- at the moment. No one is sort of operating from a place of like the pandemic will be over by this time. We will have will reach herd immunity at, at time X. Th- there isn't a plan to provide vaccines to everyone in the world. It's much more about managing the pandemic and. I mean, there are efforts to sort of get to herd immunity over some period of time. But our analysis suggests that we really actually need a manufacturing program, a, a warp speed for the world, if, if you will, that we need to produce billions more doses uh, within about a year's time in order to bring an end to the pandemic and also bring relief to everyone in, in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, we think it's possible uh, if there's considerably more ambition and high-level political leadership
0: As I understand it, the goal is to have vaccine manufacturing hubs on every continent in the world, particularly those hard hit by the pandemic, Latin America, Africa, Asia, Oceania. What are the obstacles standing in the way of going forward with the manufacturing? It's not just money. It's also the pharmaceutical companies that have patents on these critical vaccines. They would have to make the decision to waive their patent rights. Is that correct? Yeah, it's both the
3: patents and essentially dossiers of confidential information or even potentially just know-how, knowledge that exists in the the heads of engineers um, that will have to be passed on person-to-person in some cases. And companies are hesitant to do that, both for their, of course, their short-term profit interest, but also longer-term, because they, they essentially envision selling future products using similar technologies. So we think in that regard... We need, again, um, high-level political leadership to call those companies to the table and say, this is a a once-in-a-generation, perhaps once-in-a-lifetime crisis. We need you to share that information, and you will be compensated for the research and development that you've put in appropriately. We can afford at this moment to essentially um, pay drivers of real invention But we can't afford corporate commercial secrecy blocking our ability to scale up vaccines or
0: allowing other countries to produce their own. As I've heard, if there are outbreaks of coronavirus anywhere in the world, it is going to impact everyone in the world at some point. So it's in the interest of everyone on the planet to make sure as many people here are vaccinated with effective coronavirus vaccines. What is the cost of inaction here if we don't follow through on what you're suggesting in this initiative?
3: Well, it's greater insecurity at home. The literal financial cost is trillions of dollars worldwide of further delaying the global reach of vaccinations. It's certainly at least hundreds of billions of dollars for the United States, which relies on global supply chains and exports and imports. Uh, But of course, the more important cost is in human lives. We think the difference between setting up a manufacturing program for the world and not is a million lives, perhaps more. And obviously, it's not a simple or a pleasant thing to model out. But if we think about the ability to shorten the global pandemic by a year, perhaps more, it's obviously a great many lives and a tremendous amount of economic activity worldwide at stake And also other issues potentially like political stability. As I talk to colleagues that work in other countries, we sort of get an an increasingly difficult picture where people really don't know when the pandemic will end, when they'll be able to plan for their families. And the political situations can get worse in an environment like that as well. So we are talking about returning a measure of stability to the planet. And it would seem like even if the cost were far, far higher than what we are proposing. It would still be worth doing.
0: That was Peter Maybarduk, Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program. Learn more about the initiative to bring billions of additional coronavirus vaccine doses to people around the world by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As a presidential candidate, Joe Biden called for ending subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Since becoming president, he's taken steps to rein in the expansion of fossil fuel extraction on public lands and famously canceled the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline on his first day in office. A conservative estimate from the group Oil Change International puts the U.S. total of fossil fuel subsidies at around $20.5 billion annually, including $14.7 billion in federal subsidies and $5.8 billion in state-level incentives. 80% of these subsidies goes to oil and gas, with the rest supporting coal. And most of the subsidies are in the form of tax deductions and exemptions for other obscure tax loopholes and accounting tricks that result in massive avoided costs for fossil fuel producers. There are many kinds of subsidies for both fossil fuels and renewables, but they're not created equal. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhus spoke with Colin Rees, senior campaigner with Oil Change International, about Joe Biden's stance on fossil fuel subsidies and what we may see happen in both Congress and through Biden administration departments and agencies, such as the Department of Energy and Department of Interior.
4: So the U.S. federal government gives tens of billions of dollars every year uh, in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. This is public money going to support oil, gas, and coal production. Tax breaks, giveaways, lessened royalty rates, grants, any number of uh, fiscal mechanisms essentially which go directly to increase the profitability of fossil fuel companies and to drive additional fossil fuel production. Uh, And so right now in the U.S., There's about $15 billion per year in public fossil fuel subsidies going to the oil, gas, and coal industries.
5: So what's the difference in dollar amount or longevity between fossil fuel subsidies and subsidies to renewable energies?
4: Renewable subsidies in the US are both lower than fossil fuel subsidies, the numbers are somewhat comparable, but the, the big point to remember here is that renewable subsidies are almost all temporary. These tax breaks for renewables, the ones that we typically think of when we talk about renewable subsidies are the investor tax credit and the production tax credit, uh, which go to help solar and wind development. And those are useful, they're good. We're investing in things that we like, uh, but one of the problems is that they're set to expire every year, every two years. Uh, maybe if you're lucky in Congress, we'll get a two or three year extension. Uh, Meanwhile, almost all of the fossil fuel subsidies, the tax breaks that we're talking about, have been around for decades, many of them, many, many years, over a century in some cases, and these are what we call permanent tax breaks, permanent parts of the tax code. Uh, So I think the relevant thing to remember here is that unless a tax break is permanent, it's always on the chopping block, essentially. Permanent tax breaks for the fossil fuel industry are about seven times higher than permanent tax breaks for the renewables industry, Uh, looking at over $7 billion a year for fossil fuels and only about $1 billion a year in uh, permanent tax subsidies for the renewable industry. So that's the big gap that we like to talk
5: about. It's so interesting that some are permanent and the ones we want aren't permanent. And that really impacts companies' abilities to build out the renewable infrastructure
4: what these permanent tax breaks do is give certainty to the fossil fuel industry. I think it's important to remember that that's a key piece of what fossil fuel subsidies are designed to do uh, is essentially send a political signal that the government has your back. uh, If you're a coal company, if you're an oil company or a gas company, Uh, the actual dollar amounts are very germane, they're very important. They do make a material difference in some of these cases. Uh, But I think, if anything, the political signal is as important or more important than the monetary piece. Uh, And so this idea that you know the government's always going to have your back, you're going to get these subsidies when you need them, they're going to be there next year, it allows you to do this long-term planning to continue to plan this fossil fuel expansion, which is so deadly. Whereas, as you mentioned, for renewables, there's not that certainty, you don't have that guaranteed environment which you can continue to build out and make plans.
5: Colin Rees, can you just say with as much specificity as you can, what President Biden is proposing to do about rolling back or getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies?
4: President Biden has been quite consistent throughout his campaign for president, uh, both in the primary election and the general election, and then since he was elected, uh, that he does intend to end fossil fuel subsidies. There's a lot of gray area in what is defined as a subsidy uh, in the public discourse, Higher end estimates of direct subsidies to the fossil fuel industry are in the range of 10, $15 billion uh, a year. That's what our research shows. That's what the End Polluter Welfare Act, uh, which was just recently released mid-April by Senator Bernie Sanders, Representative Ilhan Omar. uh, Those are the subsidies that it identifies. What we've seen from the Biden team so far is a lack of specificity as to what subsidies they're targeting. Uh, We actually don't think that's a bad thing where it's good that he's, in some sense, leaving the door open uh, to be big, to go bold, uh, to kind of use a larger number. And so we are going to continue to push him to do that, putting a lot of support behind great bills like the End Polluter Welfare Act that was just introduced. Subsidies to fossil fuels are harmful to people's health. They're creating environmental injustice. They're leading to racial injustice. And they're leading to continued expansion of the fossil fuel industry that's driving the climate crisis.
5: I was just reading that Interior Secretary Deb Holland rolled back a bunch of things about drilling, and she's saying that the department has to look at everything through the lens of climate change. Is there any more you can say about that?
4: When Biden made his executive orders on climate at the very beginning of his presidency, He singled out a couple different kinds of subsidies that they wanted to look at. Uh, The ones that we talk about the most are the tax breaks and legislative subsidies, as we call them. So those are subsidies that need to be removed by Congress. And so that's what the budget reconciliation fight is. The infrastructure bill, we're going to be working to try to eliminate some of those subsidies in Congress But there is another category of subsidies, which is still a couple billion dollars a year, one to $2 billion a year. It's a pretty sizable amount of money. That's what we call executive subsidies. So these are things like uh, giveaways to the Department of the Interior, fossil fuel loans at the Department of Energy, or the existence of the Office of Fossil Energy, for instance. These are things that we don't think should exist in an administration that's committed to tackling the climate crisis. And so these are also subsidies that Biden's administration can remove without any obstruction from Congress.
0: That was Colin Reese, senior campaigner with Oil Change International. Find more information on the campaign to end federal subsidies to the U.S. fossil fuel industry by visiting our Between the Lines website at (music) btlonline.org. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, KSER in Everett, Washington, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikita. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.